0: <laughs> the Sami
1: Network.
2: Salam, salam, Stastin singe. This is Nur and
0: this is Weiss Hamid. And I I'm always impressed by other people's Herati accents.
2: Thank you, thank you. I've been spending way too much time with my dad Skyping people in Hirat these days, so it's getting a little better. (laughs) Um, But I got to work on my Pashto. And I need to learn the Pashto word, actually, for our topic today, which is on domestic violence. Um, We had a pretty heavy conversation on Facebook Live recently, and now we're transitioning it into this podcast it was a really great conversation that was um, co-sponsored by the Afghan American Community Organization, the Afghan American Women's Collective, the Afghan Diaspora for Equality and Progress, and us at the Samoa Network, and um, the organic way it flowed. I think it was that weekend, right, Weiss, that people, how did it start? Like, how did we get to having the Facebook Live? I think that's an important thing to maybe...
0: Yeah, so there was that, uh, I know there was a, I believe it was a TikTok video that was uploaded and shared by a pretty high-profile Afghan celebrity, and then people started to uh, spread information of the fact that one of the participants of that TikTok video has had domestic violence allegations, and stemming from those domestic violence allegations became a bigger conversation about just how... The Afghan diaspora handles domestic violence, how we deal with the victims, how we deal with the perpetrators. And it just became a very um, it became a, a conversation outside of TSN. And then we thought that it would be a important enough topic for us to carry it. And then particularly with some of the folk who have been very vocal about it on both social media in Twitter and on Instagram.
2: Yeah, I think the most exciting part was that, that as, as folks will listen in a few, the, the women on the front lines of the conversation um, were able to join us in, in sort of discussing the reflections and what needs to happen in the community for us to be better about this. Um, and that really made me reflect a lot. So I was curious what you thought, le- like I was pretty tired after the conversation because it was a pretty heavy day. Um, But it was also very empowering. One of the things I left the conversation really thinking about was introspection on how I'm holding myself and people in my life, especially men in my life, accountable to having any sort of uh, behavior that might lead down a path of domestic violence. Like this is a slippery slope. There's a lot of things that happen before DV in terms of behavior that men may exhibit. So I've been spending a lot of time thinking about that. I'm curious what your reflections were.
0: Yeah. So, you know, prior to the call, uh, when I was asked to help co-facilitate this thing, at first I was just like, yeah, of course I'll do it. And then leading up to the call, like especially the day before and even a little bit the day of, I was starting to grapple with sort of what my role was as a man in this conversation. You know, I was... It was really troubling because I was thinking on the one hand you know and I say it in the call where this is something that should not be the burden should not just be on women have this conversation and that both parts of the community um of course when I say both parts it's not necessarily a binary conversation but you know men should be shouldering uh some of the labor as well and that it should be something shared At the same time, I also was very cautious and very cognizant that I'm, it's also part of my goal to listen and to not, and to allow the women in the space, especially the ones who have been at the forefront of this conversation to have their space and to, you know, to validate and to, but also just to make sure that they are provided that space and not take too much of it up myself. Um, and so after the call, you know, I, uh, like I'm, I have my self-conscious moments of, I probably, did I, did I not say enough? Did I say too much? Did I say anything stupid? Um, so if anyone feels that I did any of those things, feel free to send me hate mail. I don't mind. (laughs) Um, but no, I was, it was, I think it ended up being a good conversation. I ended up leaving it feeling, you know, that it, it went in directions that I didn't originally anticipate it to go to yeah. and that I particularly felt that it was a lot more nuanced than I was even expecting, which I'm, I'm happy about.
2: Yeah, and the user engagement on the, the Facebook Live was great. We, I think we had a lot of great feedback from people listening in, so we would love to hear your feedback and... One of the things, like you said, Weiss, is it went in directions we may not have anticipated, but in an important way. So one of the goals after this conversation is to have at least a few more follow-up conversations, um, one centered on toxic masculinity, because that relates a lot to this, um, one on spiritual abuse. So there's a few more directions. So this is just the sort of tip of the iceberg on... Mm -hmm. Continuing these conversations.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it is important that, especially leading up to that call and even moving forward, we have a we have a good social media team that's now been um, even expansive. We have now grown it. So, in terms of our Instagram account, in terms of our Twitter account and Facebook account, we really do want to urge people to continue to subscribe, continue to engage um because that is the best way that you can get our content and we are as Nora was saying we are continuing to plow along and provide more and more content so please subscribe uh follow engage because this kind of conversation it needs to happen with everybody here
2: and let us know what you think
0: but anyway so uh without further ado uh we now present the facebook live conversation for everybody
2: salam everyone Um uh, welcome to the Samoa Water network uh for those who know my name is nurah i'm calling in today from toledo ohio we have a really important conversation we're hosting tonight. The conversation is a heavy one, but it's a necessary piece to help people in our community in the process of healing. Domestic violence, as we all know, is a global issue that has seeped into all cultures and communities. But for us specifically, we're hoping to have a series of conversations, and this being the first one, on how we can tackle this within the Afghan diaspora and how we can negotiate through the cultural norms And social dynamics that make our case unique in the sense of finding solutions that fit the needs of our specific community. So while this is in no way an Afghan-only problem, we as an Afghan community would love to be on the forefront on helping end um, the disease that is domestic violence. I want to turn over to my colleague Weiss.
0: Hi and salaam everyone. My name is uh, Weiss Hamid. I'm calling from Los Angeles. Um, I just wanted to first indicate that this event is being sponsored by the Afghan American Community Organization, the Afghan American Women's Collective, the Afghan Diaspora for Equality and Progress, and the Samoar Network. Um, These organizations are endorsing the space to hold this conversation. They are not necessarily endorsing the individual thoughts and opinions of the speakers today, as they are just that. They are the thoughts and opinions of our speakers.
2: And turn um, mm-hmm.
0: Oh, uh, yeah, no. I just also wanted to address sort of one elephant in the room, which is the fact that, you know, um, we brought this space on for to, to shed light on this issue. Um, and I feel like the burden and the labor of this issue should not rest solely on the women, um, that this is a communal... that requires both uh, that requires the men to share in that labor and be present in the conversation so I just wanted to address that uh, at the forefront
2: thank you Weiss and thanks for being part of this with us so you can help sort of get the other guys in line and having this conversation this is definitely a collaborative conversation, but we are really excited to have our esteemed panelists because they have been at the forefront of having this conversation within the communities and online. So I'd love to begin with Mariam John, if you could introduce yourself and let us know a little bit about you before we kick off.
3: Hi, everyone. My name is Mariam Haidar, and I'm am a I'm currently calling from Sacramento, but I live in Los Angeles. Um, a little bit about me, I'm a political science student. Um, I wasn't actually born in America, I was born overseas, like in Peshawar, and then I moved here when I was really young. So um, my perspective on everything is like a little bit like of what I experienced in Pakistan and Afghanistan here as well. Um, but other than that, that's a little bit about me.
4: Okay, hi everybody, Salam, I'm Sahad. Um, I'm from Northern Virginia, but I'm currently in Dallas. Um, little bit about me. Um, I knew I wanted to get into social work, but now I'm after this, you know, all this discussion, I know I want to help, you know, battered women or abuse victims. Um, I personally have been through it myself, so I've always pushed the taboo topics and all of that, um, on my platform and, you know, it's just got to keep it going.
5: Hi everyone. My name is Samaya Kazini. Um, I'm from Los Angeles. I'm part of, um, the African American women's collective. We're predominantly a a professional organization, but, um, definitely, you know, see the need for these types of discussions. So, um, you know, I'm definitely here to represent them, but also, um, I want to share my experiences as raising, you know, two boys, um, and you know, bring that experience and that um, kind of perspective into these conversations. Um, and so I'm so honored to be here.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Madina Wazak. Um, I'm from LA as well, like Samaya. Um, and I'm a social worker. I've been doing social work professionally for like three years now. Um, before that I was doing grassroots activism in LA. Right now, I'm currently serving homeless folks, um, and I also run Burkas and Beer, which is kind of a platform that combines my experience as someone in diaspora and issues that I'm really passionate about. So I'm very excited to be here, and thanks for having me.
2: Thanks for joining us. So what brings us together? I think um, the elephant in the room is, is sort of what's been on the conversation table this past weekend. Um, Why is domestic violence currently a topic on Afghan social media? And I'll just sort of give a broad... For those that don't know, um, Ariana Saeed had posted a video uh, on her Instagram page, and one of the individuals in the video has allegations against them, uh, domestic violence allegations. And so... That has sort of precipitated a conversation within the community. There's a hashtag, right? Is it Believe Afghan Women is the hashtag? And so that's really what's set off this conversation now. Um, I don't know if there's any other details I'm leaving out in terms of things that are important for individuals to know. Um, The intention isn't to get into name-calling or details, but really use this moment to think about What is domestic violence? What forms does it manifest in? What can we do as a community? Because this person is, this is a disease that exists that, like many people, inflict on on victims. It's not one person. It's occurring in many instances, right? So I wanted to kind of turn the conversation from the weekend to what what is domestic violence? Medina, could you kind of kick off what a broad definition is and what some of the forms um, it manifests in look like?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, domestic violence is essentially, it it can manifest in in a couple different ways. So if we're looking at domestic violence, it's not just physical abuse, it's emotional abuse, sexual abuse, psychological abuse, economical abuse, technological abuse, and even spiritual abuse. So spiritual abuse is looking at, you know, these folks who are either leading these mass churches or spiritual groups or whatever it is. Um, it's a learned behavior and it, it, a lot of times it's shaped by your community, right? So, so folks, um, who are either experiencing domestic violence or inflicting it, it's a lot of people talk about the nature versus nurture debate, but, um, what we're seeing is that it's something that is perpetuated kind of in the community. So there's different forms of it. Um, and it's, it's a part of this larger problem of misogyny. Um, and different cultures experience it in different ways and they deal with it in different ways. Um, but I just really want to make the point clear that it's not just an Afghan problem. Um, and a lot of times the social ailments that Afghan folks experience tend to then be painted as stereotypes um but there's reasons for all of this and so that's not to take away any of the uh complicity or or the guilt or whatever it is but but there's reasons why we tend to have these patterns um they're really systemic and so we'll get into that but but that's a little, a little spiel about domestic violence
2: That's super helpful. I think that people don't think about, they think of domestic violence and they just think of like the physical part. They don't think about the emotional abuse or spiritual abuse. Like a lot of the Afghan community, not all um, are pretty religiously observant in some way and so sometimes people will turn and use um, the Quran for example as a way to sort of um, hurt and harm people, right? And um, threaten them and one of the things you mentioned is and you men- you had a post on this on Burkas and Beer is um that war perpetuates violence and so there is a history sort of some of the intergenerational trauma. How does that affect the conversation?
1: Sure, so it's absolutely relevant. Um if I can sum up intergenerational trauma into like a quote, it's hurt people hurt people. Mm. Um, And so what that essentially means is intergenerational trauma is this psychological theory that trauma can be transferred in between generations. And so, so the, the experiences of our ancestors and the way that they learned about the world around them, the messages that they received about the world, um, how they saw themselves fitting in the world will have a profound impact on future generations, Um, the first example that I can think of, at least in my family, and I think other Afghan families have experienced this, is is hoarding, the hoarding behaviors of our parents. Um, I remember growing up just wondering why it was so difficult for my mom to let go of things. And then I remember one time her looking at me and saying, listen, I have to let go of everything in Afghanistan. And these plates that you're wanting me to get rid of are like golden platters to me. And it just slapped me across the face because here I am trying to Marie Kondo the shit out of the house to make it look yeah. nice, not realizing that I'm re-traumatizing my mom, right? Yeah. And so that's essentially what intergenerational trauma is. It was first kind of documented formally in Holocaust um, descendants. And so there's it's, it's a relatively new field, but there's a lot of research going into it now. And so we need to think about that when we're having this conversation because the majority of us are, um, either children of refugees or we all refu- or we are refugees.
2: So Maya, when you hear that, what is that, does that resonate with any experiences of like how intergenerational trauma played out in communities you've seen or? Yeah. I mean, just, um, hearing Medina, you know,
5: reference her mom, just like, sorry, just got me really emotional right now. And, um, Cause I see that in my family too. And, um, you know, the, um, specifically for my family, um, they have a really hard time trusting folks because the people, the people that betrayed them weren't like the the Soviets, right? It was Afghans (sighs) that betrayed them. So, um, they have, you know, trust issues and that has definitely, you know, um, trickle down to me and like my cousins and, you know, my brother and our family. So it definitely, it, it makes me emotional. And then there's so much like, you know, I'm not a professional, but it's clear that so many of the men in my family have PTSD and, you know, certain behaviors. And it, it all comes from that trauma that they experienced, you know, back home seeing their father be arrested and never seeing him again. So it definitely um, strikes a chord for me.
2: You said the word trust, and I kind of want to think, um, Sahar, we, you've sort of discussed this on social media. There's a dynamic when it comes to trust. There's this shame and secrecy that, we're, that are part of Afghan culture, and I'm curious, like how it affects the conversation mm-hmm. on domestic violence specifically. Like how are women silenced? When and like how are these tools used um, to silence
4: them? So I'm going to speak from a personal perspective and from what I've seen with this whole, you know, this past week. Sure. Um, one, it's, you know, girls from a younger age were told in the Abbey community, you know, sharmas, You can't, you can't be known to talk to this guy. It's, you know, bad nomi shame. Oh, if, even if he did all this to you, you're our family, bad no It's shame. on you. And, you know, shame on us. You'll never get married. I, I remember being told like, well, no Abbey is going to want to marry you. Well, you know, come wow, out, what Afghan what, family is going to want you? So I think especially a lot of girls are just conditioned to be like, okay, well, if I come out, you know, and I admit I was with this guy, or I, you know, admit this happened to me, I'm damaged goods, or, you know, the, what is the family going to think? What is my family going to think? You know, I'm just bringing shame. It's like the pressure of bringing shame, not on, only onto your family, but like, you know, the guy's family, like everything depends on the girl. And, I think that's one of the biggest tools that are used to silence. And then the second, which was a topic this past week was, you know, pictures or whatever it is like, you know, these guys will have them and then be like, Oh, well, I'm just going to tell your parents me data. Or, I'm just going to show your parents this, or I'm going to show this to, you know, your uncles and your cousins. And I mean, there's the amount of things that men can do to silence us. It's, I can go literally this panel can go on for days because, I mean, it's everything is on the shoulders of women from a young age. We're told bad no or don't wear your skirt like this, don't sit like this, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, and especially in our community, um, the men are protected. They are from their, from by their moms, by their you know family. They're protected while we're thrown on the front line, like you know bad no mishi Don't don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. So I mean, we're silenced in every way.
2: Yeah. Mariam, do you have thoughts on that? I think you've seen a lot of the engagement on social media too. Like what do you see from um, people that you interact with followers and their thoughts on this?
3: So uh, I just want to go back to exactly what Sahara said, like what she said really plays into a part on it. But another thing that I wanted to add is this concept of clout chasing that I've been seeing a lot on literally every single platform. Um, and it's Really discouraging individuals who are coming out, like survivors who are coming out. It's discouraging people who are like talking about it because they feel like they're like they're being labeled as someone who's doing this for attention and who's doing it for a platform rather than what the real cause is. And as like we all have experienced, the people who are talking about this, a lot of them are saying that we're doing this because we're clout chasing, and um, I think that's really counterproductive. I think it's really like I don't think it's something that we should be using, especially in a heavy topic like this Um, when talking about this for example as a A victim who's coming out they would not feel comfortable like it takes so much for someone to come out and then for people to label them as attention seeking Mm -hmm. or clout chasing is really really disheartening it's discouraging like it's just going to silence people and it's just one of those things where I'm like we don't know the intentions of people and unless their actions show what their intentions are we shouldn't be Labeling people in that way um, because it's just
4: going against the cause. If I could chime in on that, um, with the going off of that as well, um, a lot of I was surprised when we, Miriam and I, actually came onto Twitter and we're talking about it. The people who were most against us were actually women at first, and I wanted to get into that real quick. Is That's I don't a good know if point? It's because we've been conditioned, like going back to my point, you know, we've been conditioned that well, you're a girl, you shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't be doing this. But, you know, it's really disappointing, disheartening to see that See, it was, even women would DM me like, hey, who is this? Um, you know, what's the story? And I would give it, but they were the ones that still followed him and proceeded to post, you know, based on the allegations. I mean, they were the ones to post it. And then right now at the moment, though, the most complicit, I would say, is actually the men. There's more men against us and saying, well, you know, especially my DMs, well, you shouldn't have been dating, well, you shouldn't have been doing this, you know, Allah brought that on to you because you should, you know, you shouldn't have been doing this as a woman. So.
1: Yeah. Saharjan, John, um, when you're talking about how surprising it can be when, when women are trying to silence you, um, I made this meme that talked about internalized misogyny. Um, and a, a lot of time. I mean, I've been doing social work for a long time. I have my master's in it. And so like a lot of the terms that I think are new for a lot of folks and and we see all of these things happening in the culture, but we don't have the terms for them. And that's why I kind of started making those slides, um, because the internalized misogyny is very real. And so misogyny is this, this hate hatred towards women, um, stereotyping women believing in the lies and the myths that that culture creates about women and so internalized misogyny is is kind of when you know whenever we're labeled as catty or we're labeled as tearing each other down that's essentially internalized misogyny and so we we perpetuate that from from seeing mothers who treat their daughter-in-laws poorly or treat their daughters a certain way and their sons a certain way. We are the, essentially women, we are the gatekeepers of misogyny. And so it's really important that we hold ourselves accountable too. And then when I'm trying to raise that, I mean, at least my, my experience has been when I, try, when I tried to raise that um, issue, then folks will say things like, well, now you're not focusing on domestic violence, you're focusing on bashing another woman. We don't have to be so like, you know, hyper-focused on one thing. There is a way to tackle all of these things because they all inform each other. There's problems are not like, like lanes, they flow into one another. And so when we're talking about something like domestic violence, it's really important that we also look at the people who are at the forefront of our community that have massive platforms that represent our community that have access and agency that we don't and make sure that we're holding them accountable and make sure that we are saying something because if the community is bringing something to you that they're concerned about and your response is to shame and to gaslight, then that says something and we should all be really, angry about it and as a victim as a survivor I can tell you that it made me very angry and if I had to see the face of my abuser on a platform of a person in the community who's extremely prominent I would be livid and I would be re-traumatized and I would be really distraught and that's me thinking about my abuser. Okay. So, um, I think that, I think that it's important just to note that these things flow into one another and there's absolutely no reason why we can't tackle all of them at the same time. And that's just a way that, you, that, that folks are trying to silence the people who are at the forefront of this.
2: Absolutely. I mean, it reminds me, I think bell hooks said patriarchy has no gender. I think, like you're saying, women are just as involved in holding up some of these norms that hurt themselves as well. Um, And I think that's really important to remember is that we need to hold ourselves accountable in supporting our sisters when they come forward with these claims. Um, I wanted to ask, do you think the conversation this weekend was different? Did you see movement in terms of a response from the community that was more positive in terms of holding people accountable? What, was there something different about the conversation this weekend, or is it more of the same when it comes to this conversation? And I open up to anyone that's been active, because you
4: all have been on the front lines
2: of this conversation.
4: Um, I want to say what I've been saying for the past week is the minute that men got involved, the minute, as messed up as it sounds, that's when it snowballed. Because there was, you know, Mariam was right behind me on Twitter. Um, there was a couple other girls that from the beginning were right behind me. Yeah. But it took for um, Diz and a couple other men that really, you know, started to voice their opinion that people were like, oh, okay, maybe let me listen. Like, let me, and as messed up as it sounds, had it been just us still, like the girls, we would not be on this panel. Wow. This panel would not be happening. This, this, you know, this would have taken me, I mean, the first time I came out in August about that specific incident, I was shut within, I think, an hour or two, and I was attacked by everybody. Um, Miriam, you know, she was there. She saw it happen. It took literally until men got involved for this panel to even be possible. Yeah, so
3: I wanted to add to that because I was looking into why this time around was different than when we spoke spoke out about it in August. Because this issue wasn't something that just came up last week. This has been going on since August. and Sahara has been the one who's speaking about it since August. And in August, she there were a lot of individuals who called her a liar, who didn't believe wow. her, who said she was doing, and like she, this was all false uh, accusations. And I, the reason like I agree, like one of the reasons was that men got involved. But I think the other thing, like there are a couple of other things. The first thing, the fact that we're all in quarantine, um, we don't have anywhere else. To go anything else to do besides being on social media so what do you do like these are the things that you constantly see um the fact that a very prominent figure in our in our community was the one who posted the video and it was because that video went viral that people started to listen because now this is an individual that everyone is paying attention to Um, the other thing I want to say, um, was the fact that what one thing that we did different was instead of just keeping it on Twitter, we started posting it on our story and more girls got involved in posting it on our stories. I remember, I think it was like literally the day that it was posted, um, that I screenshotted Sahar's tweet and I put it on my story. And then I did like a, like I did little black screen and just went on with my opinion and people started messaging me, asking me, like, I had no idea, like what's going on, please update us. So I think that all of these, these factors together is what really brought this entire issue to light to a degree that it wasn't before. And I think if the biggest reason, again, like in our, in our culture, uh, men, what men say has more weight than what women say. And so the fact that men got involved really did push the movement even more.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I 100% agree with that. Um, You know, in my personal experience and, you know, I've been been running burkas and beer for six years now. Um, And this is the first time that I've, since I've kind of been involved more with the Afghan diaspora, um, this is the first time that I've seen such a snowballed effect of folks caring and being allies. And it definitely is that piece of, of men standing up. And Sahar and Maryam John know, like, they had even come to me before and asked me to make a statement, and I was terrified. And the, the reason is, is because we're not, I mean, not only are we silenced whenever we try to literally just talk about our experience, but the type of backlash that we get is really scary. And so, um, I wasn't willing to do that because I had, I've, I've experienced it before where you say something that people don't want you to say and, you know, people can quickly become really violent or make threats or do whatever. And then, so when I saw, like our male allies posting it, it gave, it gave me this buffer of like safety where it was like, well, it must be real because one of your bros is saying that it's real. So it's not just me and my girls. It's not just me and these Afghan girls complaining. It's like, no, like this, your bro is putting his stamp of approval on it. And so it must be real. And it's sad that it has to be that way. But I think we also need need to identify what are protective factors. And earlier, how we were, you know, in the beginning of this discussion, how we were talking about how the labor needs to be carried equally or, or, you know, men need to be just as um, diligent in this. It's like, there are ways for men to be allies and there are ways for men to make us feel safe in this dialogue. Um, and I I just want to say like, it's sad. I was talking to, I was talking to a friend today about it and, and I feel like for the first time I have hope where it's like, wow, this conversation is really happening and men are being so involved in it. and, it's changed because of those gender dynamics. It's changed because the the, like men's involvement is allowing us to really speak openly about it. And I don't want that to sound a certain way. Like we could have done this without the men regardless, but it would have been difficult, extremely difficult. Um, And like literally half of the world's population is men and they're the ones beating our ass. So we need them involved in it. (laughs) Like duh. So, Yeah, that was, I think, what made this really different.
5: Yeah, I think you make an important um, point there that this issue is predominantly a man issue, right? It's a problem within the community of men and they need to be addressing it. Like we can't keep telling, women can't keep telling men how to fix the problem, right? Like we can't keep saying like, this needs to change that. They need to take action, right? They need to fix the problem. But I also think what's different here, and this might be a little controversial, but I also think that the personality involved—it um, was easier to speak up against, you know, him and make noise about him just because because he was it, seen as an entertainer, comedian, or a YouTuber, right? When it's someone like a community leader or a spiritual leader, um, a philanthropist, someone that is respected, it's much harder. People Absolutely. are in disbelief. Yeah. How could he have done this? No, this is not true. And I think you're allowed to, you know, um, live with that disbelief because it's someone that you respected and looked up to, or whatever, right? But you you can't like let let that, you know, to a point where you don't believe the victims. You still have to believe the victims. These people are still capable of doing these things just because you didn't see it. Like in in domestic violence cases, these abusers a lot of times the only people that are seeing the abuse are their partners. You know, they're like great people out in the community, sometimes um, doing really great things for people, but at home they're an abuser. And so, uh, yeah, I just that's that's all I wanted to make a point about.
3: Um, I just wanted to throw some statistics in here also, um, just because one concept that's been coming up a lot is the fact that, oh, what if it's, like, false and, like, you know, falsely accused, like, charges happen all the time. But um, I've done research on this topic before in the past in my poli-sci classes, and um, 63% of cases, domestic abuse cases, aren't reported at all. And out of the 30% that are, 37% that are reported, less than 1% are false. And those false ones um, are only towards individuals, like mostly towards individuals who are either very rich or they're celebrities. So the likelihood of these situations like being false is very lower than like 1%. Um, and I, I just want to say that to those people who are saying, oh, this is false or what if she's lying or what if this is this or that, that's not to say that people don't, but the likelihood of it being like being false is very, very, very low.
4: Yeah. To your point, Just chiming in on top of that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. uh I just want to say, um, on top of that, the amount of messages I would get, um, of, well, where's the proof? Well, where's the pictures? Like, most of the time, you know, speaking from experience, we don't, you're not gonna stop and be like, wait, let me take a selfie first. And then let me show everybody this selfie. Because, A, if you're already asking for pictures, you're most likely gonna deny that this was the cause of a guy. Because if you're already asking for that proof, you're just gonna deny, 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 deny the next picture you get. Or, I mean, it's gonna take till the guy himself goes, yeah, I did it for people who want that proof to be like, oh, okay you know what, I believe you now. All right, that's what I want to say. want to chime in. No, I
2: think um, to the point of people coming forward, there's a severe underreporting, right? I think one of the biggest problems with domestic violence cases as well is that the legal system in the United States, at least, was not built for women. It was not built to protect women. There's a great book by Carol Pateman called The Sexual Contract, and it really discusses, some of the overarching ways where the legal system was built for land owning white men and so we're an afterthought so even when domestic violence cases are brought forward to be adjudicated by the law um, the, it is an emotionally exhausting process for women and there's no guarantee that they're going to be served the justice that they deserve right and so it's a high threshold and this is something that clients are warned of when they go forward so it takes a lot of bravery for women and they're not protected necessarily just because they go forward the case right the legal system was not meant to protect women it wasn't women were not involved when this was happening so it is very much even the law as much as we want justice is is sort of set up not to help women and i think that's a really important part to Maryam's point on Women are under reporting because they don't necessarily trust that the law is going to be out there to help them or protect them um, but returning to men one of the things that has come up um, that has been interesting is um, you all were talking about men calling out the abuser one of the thing we've one of the things that we've been that has kind of come up internally is, Uh, are men allies? How can they be better allies? And are men introspective? Because I think it's really easy for some men to be like, oh, that guy is bad, right? Like he physically hit someone, but me, I'm good. Like I don't have any toxic behavior, right? And so it's easy to sort of sit back and not be introspective about how you are sort of perpetuating that kind of violence in different ways. So I wanted to see what y'all thought about that. Our men being introspective and not only calling out other men, but taking a look at themselves, taking some time in the mirror to sort of think about this. And our resident dude on the call, Weiss, I'm staring at you. If you wanna kick off,
0: yeah, you know what? I, that that actually does tie into the next part, which they'll be looped in together, and it's the concept of gaslighting. Um, so I'm going to define what gaslighting is, but I just want to provide a disclosure. Um, I know full well the women on this call and the women who are watching this know exactly what gaslighting is. So they've experienced it, and you all experience it far more than I have. So I'm only meaning to provide the definition for the men listening that might not know. So don't you know? Uh, um, so the the definition that I have here is the term gaslighting refers to when someone uh, manipulates you into questioning and second guessing your reality. Um, And, you know, going into the, it it is easier to call someone else out. You know, when when people think that, especially uh, us men (laughs) think that we're being allies, it's like, well, I'm going to call out my boys when they say something. But one thing that we don't necessarily do is think about um, when I personally hear something from a woman, especially whether it's an accusation or just anything, um, how am I responding? Am I responding in ways that um, causes you to second guess yourself and how you feel and how your emotions are, are going through in this? And so... I guess I wanted to open the floor up to see, um, you know, when it comes to something like that. Essentially, you know, what responsibility do you feel men have when it comes to engaging in this kind of dialogue?
4: I'm just going to chime. I think, I think we need them. You know, like I stated earlier, it didn't, it didn't, this topic did not even come about. This panel probably wouldn't even be happening until it was for a couple of guys that got involved because no one, I mean, it's messed up, but no one takes us seriously. No one believes us. And there's always, again, the where's the proof and where's this, where's that. I mean, even before this situation, it didn't matter how much I spoke on this topic, it was like ignored or well, you know, you're dramatic or it probably didn't happen. And even people in my area who who knew it were very like, oh, it's you're just being dramatic. Or the girls themselves have been through it. So it's like, well, you're just being dramatic. I've been through it too. Like, it's not a big deal. Like they, so we need guys to speak up on it because w- what guy really, li- like it's very rare for men to sit and listen and be like, okay, you're right. I hear you. And, you know, I'll, I'll, we'll call them out. We'll hold them accountable. It never happens. So the more, not just men, but the more allies you have, the more we're able to combat the issue. And I think that's for any any topic, anything.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think for the men who are listening who really want to be allies and just don't know how, one thing that's really crucial is um, like tone policing and the type of responses that you're gonna get. Um, when you are used to fighting a battle alone, it's it can be really difficult to manage your emotions, and so like there was a time where my where my assault had messed with me so badly that I completely distrusted men, didn't want to work with them, didn't want to be in the same office with them, um, was essentially terrified of men, and so when you're working, when you're doing this type of work, and there's a power dynamic that is off you have to be cognizant that you're not gonna get somebody skipping over to you and being like, I'm so excited that you're here. That could be the, the case, but everybody has different responses to it. And so um asking I there was this great quote and it said asking marginalized people to control their emotions when they talk to you is the epitome of privilege. And so when I'm talking to you about my oppression and when I'm talking to you about an experience that was really painful, I don't need to sugarcoat it and I don't need to control my emotions to make this easier for you. If you're coming into my space because you want to help me or you you are claiming that you want to empower me, then it's better that you see this unfiltered. Um, because then that's us doing more emotional labor to try to control ourselves so that you feel better. And so I just wanted to put that out there that it's like, you know, we think Kumbaya, we're all going to hold hands and we're all going to be allies, but this is something that's really dirty and really painful and really hard and completely changes your life. And so if you're down with that cause, you have to be aware of how you might be perceived
2: It made me think when you said emotional, um, y'all remember Brett Kavanaugh, um, the Supreme Court judge now, his nomination process when he was accused, um, how emotional he got, right? So there's a stereotype that women get emotional, but the woman he assaulted held her calm so well when she was being, when she testified. And he's the one that freaking, you know, was emotional and went ballistic when um, he testified. And to me, that's just such a clear example, right, of what, and the perception, you know, what the clear example of what men are able to get away with doing versus if a woman did that automatically before the, Uh, before the victim said anything, people presumed, you know, they lauded her like, wow, she's holding her cool because they don't expect us to. So there's this burden that you said that's placed on us that almost um, feels like a muzzle. And so I wondered what um, the rest of y'all thought about that.
4: I Um, actually want to go off what you said with the whole Brett Kavanaugh thing uh because um, I just want to throw a little out there that just because someone is not legally held accountable does not mean they're not you know guilty of it by the way just because you know i know how these court proceedings everything goes it's really hard for the guy to even get convicted so i'm not really fond of people saying like oh well you know guilty until you know or innocent until proven guilty because that's usually not even the case especially with domestic violence absolutely cases. i mean like brett kavanaugh like you know that's what made me think of it is he never got charged, but I'm almost 100%. I believe the woman. He did it. So this whole narrative that I keep getting in my DMs as well as, you know, innocent until proven guilty. I, I want to dismiss that because I've i been through it. And does that I mean I'm lying? I have no proof. I have no pictures. I have nothing. Because some people just don't want to relive that, you know. So just based on that background, i just maybe remember that.
3: Yeah, Mariam, you had thoughts on this too, I believe, right? Yeah. So, like you mentioned, we do have a burden of uh, like just acting ra- "quote unquote" rationally, not being hysterical, you know, like that whole situation. But in these types of cases, like it's really, really difficult. As like I, I'm, I don't want to say like I don't want to speak on the on the experience of victims, but. Like just as a human being, if you look at someone that has hurt you and you're constantly seeing them, how do you not expect someone to act in that certain way? Like, you know, so it it is like a little like I I know we have to do that, but it is really, really unfair. And especially with this situation where people like Sahara was saying, where people are asking for proof like you like people in general, like you guys are not the court, the jury, the judge for you to be demanding proof. And people have, like, open cases, like, it's pending cases, so they can't provide proof anyways. And as, like she was saying earlier, like, you, there isn't a lot of, like, actual proof in these types of cases. Like, there isn't. It's just, it can be interpreted in many different ways, and a lot of people can't get charged in the first place. So when this concept of burden of proof is forced by society on a survivor, on a victim... Um, when they're not even in court, I, I think that really does affect their mental health and their their like ability to even continue with this case, you know. And and like we need to be mindful of that, and we need to take a step back, and realize that we cannot we, we cannot demand proof from people, like we really can't. Um, and although I do understand that it is difficult to believe people without it, um, but in these forms of cases, we do have to think about the toll that it takes on a victim, as on a survivor, for them to come out and even speak about this, especially in our society and how, like, taboo this topic is in the first place. Um, so I just want everyone to be really mindful of that when asking for these situations, like, these forms of, of proof or whatever, because that's what I've been getting a lot in my DMs. That's what I know Sahara's been getting in her DMs. Like, they're all asking, where is the proof? Show me the proof. I'll only leave you for their script. And I can't, like, I can't, we can't provide you with that.
1: Yeah. And I'll just quickly add in as someone who, um, I go with a lot of my clients to court and like, I'm supposed to be their like a support system there. And it's intimidating for me. Like, it's really difficult to try to navigate agencies and systems and institutions. Um, And like, I've taken DV DV clients to file the report to try to get a restraining order to then wait two weeks. Maybe a detective will call you. Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll reassign your detective. Maybe they'll accidentally like mix up your case with someone else's it can take months. It is so difficult. Um, I've I've worked with undocumented women who are trying to get their citizenship through the Violence Against Women Act, and these courts are asking for so much proof. And it's like so di- like this person is undocumented; they're not going to have proof. And it's so it's just when people ask for proof. It's like, Mm -hmm. y'all have been watching too much Law and Order. That is not how it works. Systems are extremely difficult to navigate. There is systemic racism in these systems. So when I go with a client who is African-American, they have an extremely different experience than when I go with my client who is white. Um, And so it's like, people are so quick to like, run with their Twitter fingers and and just ask for these things without really thinking about how it is to do, to actually be there. And so, you know, I wanted to add that in as someone who's like had to walk people from beginning to end. And they're both those cases that I'm talking about, both their abusers are still out there and haven't seen a -hmm. judge. So it's extremely difficult.
5: I'm, Mithia, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I've also seen this this talk of like, oh, well, women in the West have no excuse to take abuse because the law is on their side and they can pick up the phone and call the police. Like, that's just that's bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so much of this gets, you know, is underreported. Mm-hmm. So it's it has nothing to do with that. There's so many things involved. First of all, especially in our culture, in this culture of shame, it takes so much courage To tell someone in the first place so when somebody does speak up it has taken every single like ounce of their you know being to say something right to speak up and say that this happened to me and then to be like hit with well where's your proof like that just and that's why women don't speak up you know in every community that's why because again I go back to the point like A lot of these abusers, they're really good at mitigating their personalities outside of the home. So people don't see it. It's hard for them to believe. So women are like, well, nobody's going to believe me because he's like this, right? He's like that. Or, you know, financial abuse is a big deal, big thing too. Women are like, you know, they are not financially independent, so they don't say anything because how can I survive? I have children. How can I survive without, you know, this man? So it's so layered and complex that when when someone actually does have the courage Like, it's so painful to, you know, to have someone tell you to shut up. No, don't say anything. Don't do this. I had an experience as an adult just a few years ago where somebody very close to me, uh, somebody that I looked up to, I grew up with, did something very inappropriate, very, I won't get into the details of it. But as a grown woman, a married woman, I did have the courage to tell someone, you know, I was like, and I was able to control the situation but when I told this person, I told the people around me, um, you know, people that I respected, the first thing that they told me, don't tell your husband, don't tell your husband, don't tell, you know, this person, don't let this get out. And one of the the things that that sticks to me to this day is uh, an older, you know, an older woman told me, like, it, it this makes sense in farsi, but um, something. You know what that means, like. You know, you're, you're shaving, you know, you're, you're uh, putting your like dirty laundry out there. Like, don't, don't do it. Don't yeah. do it. And honestly, for the longest time, I didn't tell my husband and I was so afraid. And then finally I was like, I did tell him and it actually caused like, you know, a, a kind of an issue between us. He's like, you didn't trust me enough to come to me with this. But I was so in my head, even at like 30 something years old that no, you're right. I, I can't talk about this because this is like unbelievable. So for me to have that experience where I am, you know, surrounded with a lot of really strong people, supportive people, and I'm pretty like loud and confident, and I'm not afraid of people for me to have that experience. Like I can't even imagine for, for women that are dating, you know, a man where their family doesn't know about it. Right. In those situations, it's so hard. Like that love, that, that, that whole concept of shame like, well, if you leave me and I've been in this situation, too, when I was a teenager, if you leave me, I'm going to tell your family, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. This is what's going to happen where, you know, my boys are going to say that they slept with you. These are like real issues. And and again, when it comes to the responsibility of men, it's not just about calling people out when they when a the man beats someone. It's about, you know, not talking about women, not making things up, not talking about, you know, um, your relationship and and spreading rumors and saying, I slept with this girl or I slept with that girl. I did this, I did that. And actually, you know, um, calling your boys out in those situations too, not just from afar, somebody that you don't know, because it's easy to call out somebody when they're, you know, using like physical violence. That's an easy thing. It's these little things, these little things that are, that, that, you know, really matter too. And, and um, sorry, I'm getting all like, I'm getting all passionate over here, but yeah, I mean,
1: Yeah. I just wanted to, uh, so Maya, I I love everything that you're saying. And I just wanted to add, how sad is it that guys have that ammo to be like, I'm going to tell your family because wouldn't it be so cool if we were just like, tell my family, they're not going to believe you. But no, we can't say that because, because our family will probably, yeah, I I was lucky enough
5: to where, you know, my parents were pretty like, Uh, pretty cool. And like my mom actually knew of the situation. So I was lucky in that, in that scenario. But when I did finally have the courage and this was like when I was like 18, 19 years old to say like, wow, this is, this is crazy. (laughs) Like I can't do this. Um, I was like, whatever. It's your word against mine. Go say whatever you want. I'm just going to keep denying it. Um, And I did, I denied it. I mean, now, whatever, I don't care. You know, I'm freaking 38 years old now with two kids. I don't, I don't give a shit anymore. Right. But um, but there's a lot of young girls, like teenagers that are in this situation, you know, and so it's
4: it's real, it's real. So yeah. <laughs>
0: um,
4: I just want to say you. that this is why this talk is so important because it needs to it needs to change for our children. These issues that we're having as the first generation need to end for our kids because I mean it's it's way too much, and if we aren't the, ki- the generation that changes it, then who will be?
0: Yeah, I actually do want to touch upon a point that was um, that some of you have mentioned already, especially when it comes to the like demanding of proof. And I think that that's just a very good example of of one um, shifting responsibility and um, not only shifting responsibility, but also not carrying the weight if if we're if men as allies if we want to truly be you know li- like participating in the labor of this you know one it violates that because you're basically expecting someone else to walk you through everything rather than just believing it then two in terms of the gaslighting aspect of it you know the the th- like particularly the three of you um, who have been very active with this on social media like, you wouldn't say things if like you didn't like you're not dumb, <laughs> like you're you know. So if I'm texting you or if I'm DMing you, like demanding like oh you know that would be ve- that's very irresponsible for you to do without you know having proof blah blah blah. Like that is just in whether they understand it or not, like that is a form of gaslighting because it's like I'm not like, yeah, like you're, you're forcing, you're trying to get someone to question their own reality. You are, you're all intelligent people who know what you're doing. Like, and so the forcing or the expectation for you to walk through everything for every single, you know, like anonymous Twitter account is one putting that thing on you. And also too, like, well, I, am not just going to say it for no reason. Like, so, you know, going in terms of the, um, get what roles can, can men play? Um, I, that's just a hearing all, you know, the, the four of you explain that is just, that's just perf- a perfect indication, at least for me of what men can do that, and, and and just as importantly, what men should not be doing um, when it comes to hearing this kind of thing, because the abuse like like, yes, like we should be rooting out abuses. But also, and also in terms of that, like, how do you have this kind of dialogue and how to have this conversation um, without the need of expecting all the burden to be on on women? And then two also just. Validating and acknowledging what women are saying without um, expecting them or questioning their sense of reality.
3: I just had one quick thing to say that going back to when I was saying that um, we men do have like what they say has more weight in our community than women. Uh, We have a tendency as a community. I don't want to say all of us, but most of us, the Afghan culture community, uh, we tend to believe abusers over victims. We tend to ask victims for so many pictures and proof and this and that. But if an abuser says, oh, I didn't do it, then they didn't do it. And I think we need to shift that and we need to shift the way we see those things. um, And instead like allow victims to be heard and to be listened and to like allow them to speak and to believe them rather than just saying, Oh, we'll prove it to us. Uh, Otherwise we believe the abuser when he says, or she says that it's going to happen.
1: Yeah. And just to, just to kind of add two things to that too. It's, I I think it points out the privilege that men have when they are so far removed from the reality that women live every single day, where it's like, how could that have happened to you? Well, because it doesn't happen to men. I mean, it happens. Let me completely backtrack that. Of course it happens. But the number is really, really disproportionate, right? And so it points out to, to men's privilege where it's not their lived reality. It's not their lived experience. Um, and then the second thing that I just want to add is I I can speak for myself when I say nobody wants to feel and out themselves as a victim. That's not something that, that you want to go around and skip around town saying, um, it's something that is like really intimate and really painful. And I, I can't imagine that anyone would be excited about coming out and saying that.
2: Thank you, Madhu. We've kind of already started this, but I wanted to give a shout out to Frishta Kokar for asking this question. Uh, What do you think should happen next? Um, What is a good action plan? Uh, Frishta says, I feel like there needs to be events that talk about this topic. What are solutions we have in terms of thinking about moving this conversation forward? Um, If you want to start, Medina. go ahead.
1: Yeah, for sure. I definitely, just me being a mental health advocate and being a social worker and training right now to be a therapist, I think that it's really important that everyone goes to therapy. Um, I It's really difficult to navigate and access therapy, and, and that's true. Um, but we need to, li- like, if you're keeping everything inside, you're going to take it out in really negative ways. And just like how I said earlier, hurt people hurt people, right? Like there's, okay, so so whenever I work with victims of human trafficking, not only are we seeing that girls who have been trafficked often come, for, like, it's also something that's intergenerational, but but boys are also groomed to become pimps when they're older. And so, like, these abusers were once little babies. And thinking about the types of messages that we're sending little boys and little girls. Um, And so I think that's why it's really important to go to therapy. And it's really important for us to do like, to have community spaces and, and just like a lot of collaborative work. Um, But most importantly, going to therapy. And the reason that I say that is because it gives you the chance to, it gives you the chance to really look at yourself introspectively and have someone who's impartial help you along um so that's like my first thing is go to therapy you know you need it so just go
2: I almost think there should be a hashtag especially for men like the mirror challenge like every dude after this call needs to go look themselves in the mirror and ask what problems do I have what traumas do I have and what am I doing to the women in my life did I have a temper tantrum on a call towards my sister towards my mom towards my girlfriend like take a freaking second if you of these guys are doing these challenges, do a mirror challenge have the conversation women should do the same because they're like y'all said women are are a part of this process too but that introspective work is so needed people can yeah. comfortably point to others but are they are they pointing and doing the healing work themselves
1: yeah um, and just one more thing I just really quickly wanted to add. This culture of misogyny, this culture of patriarchy, it's damaging to men. Men have higher rates of suicide, higher rates of addiction, higher rates of engaging in risky behaviors, um, higher rates of, of self-injury. And that's because the messages that we're sending men is boys don't cry, don't be a little bitch, handle it, and you know be a OG about it and just roll on and do your fucking thing. That's why men have shorter lifespans. It's not just because we have, like, we're, women are eating ambrosia and are just living forever. No, it's because we are more in tune with our emotions because from a young age, we were told that it's okay to be in tune with our emotions, and boys were told that it's not. And so this work isn't just for us. This work is for you, and you need to be committed into it if you want to live a long life. You want to live a good, fulfilling, healthy life? Then then check your masculinity because it's literally killing you.
4: Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to just... Oh, go ahead. With that, um, sorry, for like the solutions like this, like everyone I've been seeing tweeting is it's such a taboo topic. And the problem is because not, not enough people are speaking about it and not just in this, but in terms of everything, like, you know, Medina was saying, like, your misogyny is killing you. Like, you want to live a long life? Like, it's not just this. It's all these taboo topics that we're told not to talk about. You know, with the domanta What was the domaneta? Um I've heard that so many times. I've I've been told that many times, but I mean, uh, we're at the stage where, yes, we're uh, at Yes, we love our culture, but we're in America and we really, really have to somehow not adapt, but in a way, like combine the two, you can't, I mean, you, you can't live in this misogynistic bubble. Like we're not like our, we're not our mothers, we're not our grandmothers, we're not our, you know, we're not tolerating that. And that needs to be all these taboo topics have to be brought up one by one by one and I don't care who gets uncomfortable or who says well look at see, you know and don't say stuff like that or this and that it has to be brought up or else our children are going to suffer and their their children are going to suffer and it's just going to keep going that interracial you know trauma or that intergenerational trauma is just going to keep going
1: I just wanted to quickly point out that because we have the luxury of being able to access therapy we're not living in a war zone right and so we we have that luxury of being able to introspect and, and, like, look, take a look at our culture and, and do all of those things. And so we need to take advantage of that.
3: I wanted to say in terms of, like, what we're, like, we need to do in the future and what we're doing right now, um, I personally am so proud of where the entire diaspora has been in this situation. Um, as much as we've gotten hate, we've also gotten so much more, uh, like, support. And I want to say, like, it was because we started to speak about this topic that this topic became such a big part where people, Afghans, are globally talking about it. And that is the first step. This is where it started. And the way that, just like Medina said, to, like, go to therapy, check your masculinity. Sahar was saying that. And I think we need to also have a healthy and positive outlet for our Afghan women and women of all kinds, you know, but specifically, like, for and women where they can talk about what's going on with them. It can be anonymous or whatever, where they can feel like they're being heard and, or, or men. I'm not saying that it's just women, but also men. Um, and, For us to be able to have these conversations away from just social media to, like, our homes, to speaking with our parents about it, to speaking with our friends about it, and holding everyone accountable. Because I believe, like, from my experience ever within the Afghan community, this is the first time I'm seeing someone actually being held accountable for domestic abuse. Um, and not just one person, but multiple people and enabling them or anything like that. And I'm really, really proud of us for doing this because we're becoming the change that we want to see. And we can't just let it stop from here. We have to continue doing it. And we need to take these conversations home and we need to talk to our parents. We need to talk to our friends. We need, If we have kids, we need to make sure that they're going to be raised in a way that's not toxic masculinity or victim blaming or anything like that. And it it starts with us first. Yeah. And, um,
5: I also, well, first of all, therapy does work. It works a hundred percent. Um, and then also I have to, we have to also believe in rehabilitation, right? Like these men can get help, right? So, uh, abusers can get help. You know, you have to believe in that. Like if, especially people who are like, you know, you know, if we're involved in like social justice and these types of things, we have to believe that these people can get help and they can rehabilitate and, and change so, you know, we definitely need to encourage that. Um, and and I I do think that these people do need to be ostracized to an extent, but then also really encouraged to go and get the help that they need so that they can function as as normal people, you know, um, and have a healthy cuz a lot of times, you know, some people won't, won't won't leave their partners, right? They won't leave their partners. So, if they're choosing to stay in the marriage or in the relationship or whatever the case may be, that person needs help. So, um, you know, for it to be healthy, a healthy relationship. And second of all, the way we talk to children and how, and just being a mom of boys, um, I bring this up because I'm very, they're 12 and eight, but I'm very, very candid with them. Like I tell my 12 year old, he's going on like 40, but I have very clear, and honest conversations with him about how, you know, to, to treat women and how to treat girls in school. And, and, um, and, you know, he sometimes gets annoyed, but he's listening. I know he's listening. So, you know, getting kids to, you know, involving them and talking not just to girls on how girls can protect themselves, but talking to the boys and what they shouldn't do and what behaviors they shouldn't like, you know, um, what behaviors they shouldn't have or, or avoid. So it's just as important, if not more important, to tell the boys what not to do instead of, you know, and how not to behave. And so I was always putting the burden on little girls. Like, don't sit like this. Don't talk like this. Don't do this. Don't do that. You know, it's always, I've heard of my entire life since I was a little girl, right? And um, having a brother, he didn't have to experience any of that. So, you know, talking to, to, um, to the kids and then, and really, really encouraging. And just remember, like, like you said, these behaviors are, are, are learned. So for a man to do this, there's an uncle or a dad or somebody at home, you know, that they've learned this behavior from. So recognizing that and and um, and then just starting at the home. Right. And building trust. That's the biggest thing I wanted to talk about. Staying consistent and building trust. If we're going to speak out. And we're going to choose to believe these victims. We need to choose to believe every victim that stands up. We can't, we can't cherry pick. I know it's so hard, especially because sometimes it's going to be our uncles, our brothers, our dads involved, but we can't, we can't cherry pick, you know, we don't have to come out and publicly like, you know, shame our brothers, our, our, our friends and stuff, but we, we can't also like shut the victims down or the people that are speaking up. You know, we need to believe women every single time. We can't. You know, and and I love that this this issue, um, you know, has really blown up. One of the things I've been saying is like, you know, this whole thing, like I hate how a story just like snowballs in the Afghan community. But this is one of those times that I'm so happy that this is happening and and the traction that it's getting. Let's just be consistent with this. Let's be consistent.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Samaya. That's a perfect way to. you know, wrap this, at least this conversation up, because to the point that Nora is making and the point that all of us are making is that this isn't the only conversation that we need to be having, and so hopefully within this space at least, we're hoping to have a series of conversations um, on both domestic violence, but also toxic masculinity, child abuse, there's, there's plenty of of issues that are interrelated with this that um, need to be addressed. So I just first want to thank our panelists here, Medina Sahar, Mariam, and Somaya, as well as my co-host, Noura. Thank you all so much for coming and for sharing your thoughts. Um, for those of you listening, feel free, please add all of them on social media because they're all very fascinating um, people that are providing very, very meaningful work right now, and, you know, especially for the men here to elevate these voices, because these voices are important in this struggle. Um, I want to also thank uh, the sponsors for today's event, which was the Afghan American uh, Community Organization, the Afghan American Women's Collective, the Afghan Diaspora of Equality and Progress. And I'm oh, sorry, the Afghan diaspora for Equality and Progress and, of course, the Samoa Network. Um, thank you all for attending. Thank you for giving us uh, your time. And thank you again to the guests.
3: Thank you, guys. Thank you for having us. <laughs>
0: The Sammy
1: Nevada Network.
5: The Sammy Vara Network.